Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Jason. And we have with us Donald Parkinson, who is the managing editor of Cosmonaut Magazine? Magazine or journal? Magazine. Uh, magazine. It's it's less pretentious than journal. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I've been reading Cosmonaut a lot lately, and uh, it's an interesting project. And uh, I listened to an interview that you did on Symptomatic Redness, where you referred to Cosmonaut as sort of a Jacobin magazine, but for communists? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a... That was kind of our um, initial starting point, was to kind of create a more popular magazine, but from a strict communist perspective, rather than a social democratic perspective. Not that Jacobin never publishes communists, but we kind of wanted to do something with a more to-the-left editorial line than, say, Jacobin. Right, less Bernie Sanders, more Lenin. Yeah, (laughs) basically. I mean, I think... uh, just the name cosmonaut kind of captures like what we want to signal to our readers more tell us about cosmonaut like um how did it get started and what what is your your vision really all right um i guess it started out as my kind of vision i was one of the people who started it and uh our vision was actually kind of to create a uh a non-academic Marxist think tank, if that makes sense. Like, something where different voices in the Marxist left could engage each other, and we can kind of discuss our history and discuss our strategy and politics as communists, but not necessarily from and it's as much of an academic angle, I guess. Like, our kind of... Our, we want people who are part of the movement and not necessarily grad students, for example, to write with us and, you know, grow as writers with us. So I guess that's kind of, I kind of saw a need for a non-academic sphere of the Marxist left in the publishing world, at least. Because you have Jacobin and you have, you know, Commune magazine, but, you know, these are very much dominated by academics in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. So, do you have any plans to take it into print, or are you going to keep it all online? Oh, um, we do have plans to take it into print, actually. Uh, That should be... We're probably going to do that in the summer, but... At this point, we're kind of just trying to grow up our... You know, build up our influence and grow. Get some more name recognition. Kind of show that we have some talent to give as writers. Just kind of, you know, spark interest in the topics we want to talk about. Which is often... uh, you know, very much a lot of the stuff we write about is kind of looking at leftist history and trying to draw political and strategic lessons from it. I liked the one recently about the uh, Austrian communists. Oh yeah, that's um, Alexander's piece. That's a, that's a really good one. So I guess it's open to anyone on the revolutionary communist left to be able to submit yeah, I mean, we've published MLs, we've published trots, we've published left comms, we've published, you know, I guess just what I would describe myself as more just like, I guess, a Marxist centrist. And we've we've published, you know, a wide range of different opinions and voices, but we all kind of, sh- it's all revolutionary Marxism, basically. Right, yeah. It, I'm interested to see where it goes. Oh, it's uh, another, I don't know if you were around when North Star was around. Yeah. <laughs> I remember yes. that. Yeah. I guess you could also say we're kind of trying to fill in the void that was left by the disappearance of North Star. That's something that um Varn actually comparison like Varn made that I have kind of taken up. <laughs> right, right. Because North Star was very much like a movement publication. It was, you know, trying to <laughs> publish people who were involved in stuff like DSA and Marxist Center and different organizations and put them in dialogue with each other so i guess that would be a comparison i'm sort of curious donald about the uh, response to cosmonaut you know in terms of you know like do you feel like people are picking it up you know is it making the kind of impact you've wanted to so far um and also like i don't know what's the harshest thing that people say um the harshest thing that people say is that we're stuffy orthodox salty leninists who hmm. want to destroy the environment or something like i don't know like um, 
<laughs> we also get trolled by Stalinists on Facebook whenever we post something critical of modern China or Stalin or anything like that. So there's you know we've but I think the uh, the crowd that really hates us is the more ultra left like communizer crowd. I think because they see us as like orthodox Marxists who are stuck in this kind of programmatic vision of Marxism, and we're trying to bring back you know the the early day or the Bolshevik party is usually the kind of attack that we get, which I don't think is really fair if you actually read what we have to say about these topics in our magazine. Sure. Well, so you're getting the right kind of criticisms then. Yeah, yeah. like some of the people who like Commune Mag have attacked us. But um, then I guess we did publish an article they did like, so they stopped attacking us. But <laughs> oh, the 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 Bordiga article? Um, no, it was the one on um food systems. I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, I guess um they liked that it was more uh, environmentally conscious. I guess I don't know. Uh, I'm really looking forward to your. Uh polemic against the environment that's coming out soon. Right? Well, I don't know why we've been like accused <laughs> of like uh, why we've pissed these uh, eco-modern I'm not, I, why we've been accused of being eco-modernist or some, whatever is what people called it because we've never like published any like attacks on environmentalism like I just I guess I think that a lot of people assume that like all orthodox Marxists have like no understanding of ecology or care about ecology but we actually plan on publishing something about different schools of ecological thought soon we're actually working on something related to that and so yeah i think it was because i expressed interest in doing a review of leigh phillips's people's republic of walmart and so people thought we were like stands for leigh phillips it's like i don't know if you're familiar with who leigh phillips is no i'm not okay he's um he writes for jacobin and he's kind of like a very he's very critical of the environmental movement and sees uh, like kind of like a lot of left environmentalism as being like eco austerity is what he calls it. But he's also mm-hmm. I'm not really so much interested in that stuff as his I'm interested in his this book he's coming out soon about how like the technology of like Walmart can be used for central planning. Oh yeah, and that's one topic that uh, Cosmonaut is definitely going to talk a lot about is central planning and kind of trying to revive the lost vision of the planned economy which I think is really important for breaking out of this like hegemonic liberal consciousness I guess sure yeah I mean that's been something that the you know Marxist left has talked about for as long as I can remember is you know laying hand to the ready made distribution systems of uh, modern capitalism like Walmart and you know whatever else it's there I mean it's in capital You know, Marx talks about how you have this growing centralization of capitalism that's a kind of a a partial socialization of the means of production within the within the framework of the market. So it's still irrational. And so there's this kind of idea that the forces of production are actually being underutilized to their full human capacity. And so I guess that's kind of where the uh, attack on us being like not environmental enough, environmentalist enough would be is that, you know, we don't. We were for developing the productive forces, which I think is completely compatible with ecology. Sure. You just have to do it in a planned, scientific way. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, it seems like it's not much of a leap, um, if, especially if somebody's not looking to actually read everything that you're saying, to make, you know, it's not much of a leap to make from planned economy uh, revival to naked productivism to people who don't care about the environment. Um, but I would actually yeah. say that that kind of thinking is an indicative of liberal, like liberal hegemony on the left, because that's like an old idea from the '90s. That's an anti-communist idea. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, it's it shows how there's. I guess another thing that Cosmo is interested in is kind of rekindling a, a ut- almost utopian imagination, mm-hmm. and trying to because I think if you actually look at the old classic socialist movements like the early Day and, uh, you know, the Second International and even the Third International, they had a vision of what the communist future would look like. Like, for example, yeah. one of the most popular books in the SPD was August Babel's uh, Woman Under Socialism, which is mm-hmm. very much, uh, like a, a lot of it is very much kind of imagining what socialism will be like. 
And a lot of Marxists are very against this kind of thinking because they think that it goes against Marx's method of kind of critique and, and not giving positive proposals. But the truth is, is that all of the successful socialist movements in history did kind of try to kindle a almost utopian imagination. It's not so much saying, oh, this is what the future society is going to look like, but it's just giving people ideas, you know. I feel like if you if you just say, oh, we're going to destroy capitalism and then figure everything out afterwards, that's a hard sell. Like, people want, like, a, a vision that you can kind of convince them to. Yeah, you know, I mean, Jason and I, we both spent a lot of time in the in the ISO years ago. Um, and when you know, the ISO is very much was very much just on campus uh, talking to people constantly and a lot of the conversations we would get into would be like well I mean what do you guys conceive of socialism looking like and we were like oh well that's for the future generations of revolutionaries to figure out when they make the revolution yeah, that sounds like, like ISO you know very much yeah. like spontaneous kind of like oh the workers will figure it out through emancipating themselves and you know we'll figure and that's I'm against that. I think that we should we should be th- figuring it out in our heads now, and you know, talking about it and conceiving of what it could possibly look like. It's, yeah, it's not it's not a bad thing to do. I, I I think that like to be like the utopian socialists and say, well, everyone's going to eat with their left hands, and we're going to you know have the buttons on the back of the shirts and stuff like that. I mean, that's that's go- that's going a little bit too far, but like trying to conceive of a society and what it would look like in our in our own time. It, it 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 makes a lot of sense to me, especially since for us, you know, we're going to be think we're trying to conceive of a society after the recreating a socialist society and like the burned out husk of whatever has left in like fifty years or whatever. Yeah, if there's anything left, I mean, <laughs> there's a I, I definitely yeah. have like a a kind of left com streak, I guess if you want to call it that. Yeah, I used to be a full on left com. <laughs> yeah, and I think. I think that one of the critical tasks of rebuilding the left today is um, blurring distinctions and, you know, recognizing that, like, tendencies that, you know, tend in one direction or another a little don't necessarily have to be completely separate organizations and movements. Because I hate the idea of, like, oh, I have to be a left com. Like, well, I, I might actually really agree with you about central planning, and you know, I also might happen to really agree with the sort of more utopian unleashing the dialectical power of the masses and letting a lot of things just kind of happen however they happen um i figure history will decide that for me more than i will you know yeah yeah i mean i think that there has to be an element of both i think there there's there's an element obviously in any revolution that involves a heroic creativity and spontaneity of the masses like that's something that any revolution you know from from france to haiti to Cuba to Russia to whatever you want to you know any you know any revolution that wasn't just like a military coup that's you know part of it but there's sure. also mm-hmm. you have you know you have people who are leaders who provide vision and direction and they, those people you know are very important for you know how these revolutions turn and what the end product is oh yeah I've still got a pretty strong Leninist streak in me I um I don't I don't like to to really worry too hard about what tradition I'm in because I, I think that I am, I, I could say easily that I'm, I'm a Marxist and that's good enough for me. And I, I'm interested in building a, a broad based movement. Yeah. Of exactly. All the different tendencies, you know? Yeah. It's not important to me. What adjective you apply to your Marxism. Yeah. In my opinion, like we just need to, we need to unite all revolutionary Marxists regardless yes. of tendency around the program. And yeah. I think that what this will do is it will kind of, it will, the, the, the really toxic sectarians will reject that kind of program from the beginning. And then, you know, if, if, if you just kind of move from that general idea of uniting revolutionary Marxists, you can kind of figure out how, I think that's a better way to go about building a party than, you know, trying to like you know follow some historic tradition perfectly if that makes sense sure i feel like that's what the the sects do is that they they find a historical tradition that's correct and then they dedicate their sect to reviving that historical tradition and Mm -hmm. this is what i noticed when i was in like kind of a left com milieu and people were trying to form left com groups was that 
there was this idea that there was this historic lineage of left communists and we had to kind of fall in their tradition. And I realized, you know, this is just not the way to go. What we need to do is like we kind of live in a post tradition <laughs> like yeah. left in that sense is where exactly. all that's kind of left of all these sects is kind of the burned out remnants of this the movements of the 60s and 70s like if you look at so many of the actually existing leninist orgs like PSL ISO etc like a lot of these groups are you know they're led by people whose political education was in the the new left and you basically have what's you know a group of people who are trying to keep their kind of leftist career going from the seventies off the back of you know mm-hmm. cheap cadre labor of students like that's <laughs> I'm not trying to denigrate I mean the members of these organizations either like I think that we need to you know work with these people and win them over even if we disagree oh absolutely with, you know but right. I feel like that's the the problem with a lot of the modern sex. It'll be interesting to see where the ISO goes from here. They just had a gigantic shakeup and threw out all the old leadership, like the people that have been in the organization since the beginning. They're all now no longer, uh, either no longer members at worst or no longer in leadership. You know? Huh. Well, that's, yeah. that's so very it, interesting. It'll be interesting to see where they go. I kind of had heard about that. I don't, I didn't, yeah. I, I heard there was like a big argument in ISO over identity politics or something and yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's really interesting because when I like knew people in ISO, like my interpretation was basically that the same old people who were running it had been in charge for years, and that there was no real democratic process to like elect a new leadership. But that's that's really interesting that that happened. Yeah. Yeah. But when we were there, it was the same uh, a same steering committee with one or two members switched out for the entire decade that I was in the ISO, you know. Yeah, what's happened pretty much. What's happened lately is it's it don't I, as far as I know it only happened like this one other time ever and that was like 1983 where there was a wholesale change of the leadership. You know, I haven't they haven't released any reports yet, so I don't really know details, but I'm expecting to see a whole lot of assumptions checked about like what's the proper way to conduct an organization, what's an organization like this for. I'm not going to be super optimistic about it because, you know, in my estimation, the point of a group like this, you know, the reason why I joined one was to prepare for a moment when there was a major opening and then dissolve into it and reconstitute, you know, the party. But I kind of think that's where we are, (laughs) you know, at least the beginning stages. (laughs) And I, and I, sort of doubt that that's what the report's going to say. Yeah. But, you know, maybe I'll be surprised. Yeah, the, the age of the microsect is over, you know. It's, yeah, it's I time think to start thinking differently. My read of it is that there's been a development of petty bourgeois socialism, is what I would call it, as kind of a mass movement. It's become something in mass politics. And I don't mean that to dismiss it. As I'm saying as petty bourgeois socialism is that it's a basically it's it's a base in kind of the uh, class interests of a declining petty bourgeoisie. And mm-hmm. I think that from this tendency of petty bourgeois socialism, a more proletarian current of socialism could develop. I that's... guess, it's, it's, and that's something that we've seen historically. Like for example the early workers' parties of the Second International, a lot of them were started as a merger with, you know, the Marxists and the Lasallians, and the Lasallians were more of a welfare status, kind of petty bourgeois current of socialism. But then eventually, as the movement grew, they kind of separated or just became irrelevant. But then, of course, you know, reformism arises in other ways. But So, yeah, I'm not yeah. completely down on kind of the latest wave of socialists, in Congress, just because I think that it's 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 a, it shows that politics is still happening, you know that yeah that we won't live in this post-political anti-political era that really we do live in an age where mass politics is still a thing. I think maybe at, at one point in the, like the in in the two thousands it kind of almost felt like you know we did almost live at the end of history, but I think that it's at that idea is kind of being discredited by actually you know, actual history and how things are going actually yeah. actually existing socialism in the united states yeah we have <laughs> we have some kind of socialist movement in the united states i mean as problem you know as many problems as it has it is it's something that we can work with and transform and make better 
it's you know it's better than nothing. Yeah, I won't allow myself to say I'm optimistic about anything in the world, because um, I would uh, I have a reputation to maintain. <laughs> but uh, I I would say that um, it's a more exciting time to be a socialist than it was the first um, half of my life. You know, the my my adult life up to now versus now. It's a uh, looks like things are happening. You know. Yeah, it's the the first time things are really happening. You know, in, in for as in my adult life anyway, um, I think the closest thing we had to it was something like the anti-war movement, which, you know, that was. <laughs> yeah, we that didn't was, win uh, that I was, one. I was, I was a little bit disappointing, and was then there like, was like all of the, the the political upswell around um, Obama's election, which you know was supposed to be oh it's up up and away from here like this is a gigantic opening for socialists to you know get out there and, and talk to people plainly about socialism and that of course you know went absolutely yeah. nowhere and there was occupy which i think did kind of radicalize minority of people but the majority mm-hmm. were demoralized by occupy i think based yeah. on my personal experience like most of the ex-Occupy people I knew ended up becoming just like anarcho-liberal lifestylist or just completely or right-wingers cynical or, yeah right-wingers like and a few of them went kept you know ended up becoming Marxist and joining organizations and stuff so it's and I think that I think you know it's it shows why in my opinion a more organized political movement is better even if it and some people have kind of said that DSA is basically Occupy if it was an organized movement, which I think is... Yeah. That, that kind of makes sense in a way. And so... I mean, that's how I justify my involvement in the DSA. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, where the, it's where the people are talking about socialism, so, you know, that's where I want to be. For now, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think abstention from these kind of things is the way to go like i think we have to engage in the movement where it's at but we have to also maintain the ability to be critical and you know have our own independence absolutely like um i think that there are two takes on the dsa that are absolutely wrong and there's the it's up up and away from here let's get bernie elected and we'll have socialism soon that one's wrong and so is the the DSA is reformist. They're basically killing Rosa Luxemburg all over again, you know, and that's the, the two dominant narratives about what's going on in the DSA, and both of them are, like, absolutely just ridiculous. Yeah. Completely divorced from reality. Yeah, I mean, if you've actually been to a DSA meeting, you would know that things are more complicated than that, that there's radicals in DSA, and there's a more reformist bent also. Mm-hmm. But I think... I've, a lot of my comrades in DSA think that basically the more um, momentum-oriented uh, faction of DSA that's very much trying to turn DSA into Bernie 2020 is basically politically in a position to take over. And so I think that might... I think the first kind of um, thing you mentioned might become more and more of the reality in DSA, that it might become more and more attached to the Bernie campaign and, yeah. and that will push out radicals more and more. They'll start using the anti-democratic centralism clause and silly ways to kick people out and stuff. But it might not be inevitable. So I don't know. That's just something that I can see happening. I sort of think that um, we're going to be surprised at what that actually looks like. You know, I think probably like with the development of this new caucus called socialist majority that there is a a new home for elements of what you might have called the momentum aligned people who tend more toward the direction you're talking about and then with there are all kinds of new people coming into dsa that are attracted to that kind of same set but for different reasons you know around the spring caucus and i mean i don't really know what's going to happen but i think it's all pretty in flux actually so you might be right, but I, I think we also might be really surprised at what it means for that tendency to be dominant. If that's yeah, even true, I think, you know. You're, I think you're you're right that it's in flux. I'm just saying that, like, from I, I don't have like as much insider knowledge on the DSA as other people, but it seems like the faction that uh, is most organized are the the call Spring Caucus people, and they have the most political vision. And oh yeah. Yeah, I just mean I think that even what that means is going to look very different 
within six months. Yeah. Like I would, I would describe everything as the ground's moving underneath everybody's feet. And I think the people that we would have identified as representing one thing will represent another thing by the time it comes around the convention time. Oh, right. I mean, like, think about how many communists do you know that were Democrats before uh, Bernie had the, uh, the the primaries just yanked out from underneath him, you know? I, mean, I, I, can, I can think of quite a few people who I know that were just Democrats who leaned social Democrat and uh, were super excited about Bernie and they saw how bad Bernie was screwed over during the primary process and are now uh, leaning more Marxist. Yeah, back when I was in communist league tampa we were like flooded well not really flooded per se but we had a lot of like just people who went from like democrat to left com overnight like <laughs> coming to our meetings like fuck the fuck the system like i'm a left com now like what, what it's can that we meme do? where uh it's homer simpson with a bernie a Bernie shirt, and then he backs into the bushes, and he comes out with a red bandana, AK-47, yeah. sickle on his shirt. Comes out as like a yeah. full malice girl. I'm ready to wage protract <laughs> people's war, man. My favorite version of that meme is the where there's an extra panel where it comes back out of the bushes wearing the Bernie 2020 stuff again. Yeah, see, that's kind of <laughs> what's happening. I've noticed, like it's, but it's, it's hard not to like, like you you have videos of like Bernie going around where he's like praising Cuba and the Sandinistas. It's like how can you not kind of like this guy? I mean, you know, as I know, much right? as, I just... as flawed as much as I disagree with his politics and you know his kind of corporatist social democratic imperialism, like it's you know it's it's hard not to like the guy. I kind of just think that the the approach that we should try to take or whatever in in my if i could if i could determine what everyone was going to do we would um rather than saying oh sanders is presently dominating the political discourse and that means vaguely socialistic formulations are more popular and so we can attract more people i think the approach should be since that's all true that's an opportunity for the bar to be raised which is still to say like there's some kind of engagement with the Sanders moment that I think is organizationally, politically desirable and should be fought for. And so there are, you know, I, I have been accused by uh, some comrades of being, uh, oh, you've turned social democrat. It's like, no, I just want to use the social democratic moment to talk about communism. But that means talking to people about the things they want to talk about and then taking it, you know, further than yeah. it is assumed. But I think I the mean, way to do easy. that is not to say, oh, Sanders isn't a real socialist. Talk to me about the well, real yeah. shit, you know? I mean, I mean, it's easy to remember what Marx did for much of his life, which was basically work with people who he didn't see as real socialists and critique them. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's really, like, like, you know, it's... In my opinion, like, we can get all of the benefits of the radicalization that Sanders provides without having to tail Sanders. You know what I mean? Like, sure. We don't have to campaign for Sanders and make Sanders the core of all our political activity in order to benefit from kind of the shift to the left in discourse or whatever people want to call it, the Overton window that you might cause. I think we still right. can benefit from that, but not have to tail Sanders and tail his politics. And you can kind of see it as an opportunity to, to push people to the left. But a lot of leftists, you know, they, they're used to tailing the spontaneous movement. And so... They're not going yeah. to do that. They're not going to use this as an opportunity to push for something that's even at times contradictory to the spontaneous movement, but rather, you know, it's just kind of, oh, we just got to join this movement and fight for it and see where it goes. Yeah. And I, I kind of goes back to what I was saying was like a lack of vision in the left. Like we need, oh yeah, we need a vision of, you know, what a workers republic is going to look like, you know, what kind of changes we want to make immediately and also a vision of what our long-term goal for like a new society entirely is, which I think you know should be worldwide communism. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Sounds all right. Just to clarify, I'm not actually a member of Marxist Center. Oh, okay, okay. But I'm a, I guess I would say I'm a sympathizer. Yeah, because I, uh, I guess I would say that too, yeah, to a certain extent. Yeah, because join Marxist Center. It's if they're only allowing like existing collectives of to join, and 
I'm not part of a existing collective, so I, can't, I you, they don't allow single people to join. Like, um, I do members at large. Yeah, they don't have at large members because I think okay, the reasoning is pretty sound too because they want to make sure that they actually have like real on the ground, you know, chapters and stuff before they just start letting everyone kind of flood in to join. If that makes sense. Yeah, because, makes I mean, a lot it, of it, sense. Because you don't want, you know, an organization that's just, like, a, a list of people on the internet. And so I think at, at this point, they're only, like, allowing people who are, like, they're only allowing collectives to join who are involved in doing some kind of base-building mass work. Which I think, that's, you know, I, I can't really disagree with that, you know, because I've seen yeah. examples where you have parties that start as just like lists of people basically online talking to each other and they just you know don't go anywhere and so i think that the approach of marxist center of trying to unite existing left collectives right now is is, that's the correct strategy i think and uh so you went to the marxist center conference yeah i went on i went to the conference with uh three comrades from cosmonaut and we uh basically reported on it and we published um kind of our report back on yeah i read that earlier today and jason you were actually there as well i was i actually wanted to talk about the report i guess the first thing is it's it's a fairly positive one right in terms of like the assessment of the conference itself and the aspirations of the marxist center and you just described yourself as a, a sympathizer so i'm assuming that that positivity is still roughly intact yeah, like I would say of all the existing like left projects going on right now, Marxist Center would be the one that I have the most hope in. Not to say that I don't see potential flaws in it and it's perfect, but to expect anything to be perfect right now is just idealism. Have you, I mean, I'm guessing, have you followed up with or like followed along with developments since the conference? Because I sort of haven't so much, so I'm a little in, out of the loop, a little in the dark. Uh, since the conference, it's mostly just been people, it's mostly just been kind of on the ground work that's been going on. Like, they are now, um, they, they now have a, some kind of elected delegate council, I guess, which was the plan initially. Right. Which was after we get all these organizations to sign on and agree to these points of unity, we're going to have, like, a, like every org elected delegate. And then, you know, we're going to start. And then, and I guess that's where they're at right now. And, um, you know, there's been arguments and stuff in their Facebook channels and stuff. And really nothing huge. Like, I think there's very, it's, it's still a very much, you know, I think honestly before Marxist Center can even become, like, before it will even be like a real organization in the sense of something like the ISO, I think will be a couple years of just consolidating these different collectives and getting them all on the same page and kind of centralizing what's now basically a decentralized federation. Right. Do you feel like that's, uh, considering how much time we've got, uh, you know, as a species or whatever, is is there time (laughs) to go through this process? Because my, uh, my biggest concern about the Marxist Center is my biggest concern about the DSA and the the left in general, which is like, I think, I don't know if there's another generation after this one. So it is a couple of years sounds like a really long time to be getting in shape. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I just, you know, I argue for a strategy of patience because I think if you just, if you try to force things and, you know, I mean, I, I guess you could argue that we're just fucked completely, you know, if that makes sense. Like, we could just give <laughs> up, and there's, there's nothing we can do. But we we don't know the future, and so I think, like, if it's true that, you know, we can't, you know, patiently build up an organization of the masses, then that just means, like, we kind of have to just, like, abandon the Marxist strategy in general and just take up, like, anarcho-terrorism or, you know, become, like, <laughs> the weather a, underground. That's a good and answer. I think... Like I think, but that's yeah. that's the real alternative. If you don't want to actually patiently win over the masses to a, like a communist project, then you're going to have to, you know. There's the idea is that well, if we opt some politicians and you know corporate bosses, that will get the masses excited, and we might be able to incite a spontaneous revolt. 
But, you know, nothing uh, has... Narodnik strategy. Yeah, Narodnik strategy. Like, and I think that strategy repeats itself through history. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not a great one. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think, you know, if if we're that fucked and we really just need, like, that kind of urgent of action, I really don't think there's anything we can do that wouldn't just be politically suicidal. And I, and I do worry that, you know, maybe some leftists will get this idea that, you know, we need to start yeah. forming urban guerrilla groups or whatever. But it's... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I worry that we might be out of time, but it doesn't mean that I don't think we should continue trying. Right. You know? I mean, obvious, obviously, I'm going to continue trying to build the project that we're trying to build. But, you know, I'm always worried that we're we're already out of time, you know. Yeah. But I feel like, you know, this might sound completely lunatic and religious, but I think one thing you need to have as communist is a sense of faith. Like, this is often, you know, mocked, you know, go oh, communists or just want to believe. But, like, I think you kind of have to have, like, there is a sense in which you kind of have to believe that people are going to be willing to sacrifice for something greater than themselves. And that you kind of do have to believe that there is a greater capacity for human nature than what exists right now that we might not be able to objectively prove scientifically. And there is kind of a leap of faith you have to make to be a communist in general. You know, I mean, I think that we have to be prepared to be building socialism in a in a very very different kind of world that we may we yeah. might be involved in a salvage project. Yeah. Uh, we might be putting together, you know, a, the the future socialist society in a world that's barely habitable, but you know, I think that it's still worth doing. Yeah, I mean, I think what we may end up with is like eco-war communism. <laughs> and like red warlordism and shit like that and you know we we might not get like the fully automated luxury you know gay space communism utopia where everything's automated and cyber sin plans everything as much as you know i'm a fan of you know futuristic visions of you know we might end up in a situation where it's gonna be you know like almost like primitive communism maybe who knows but i know that you know if it comes down to that i'll be on this on, i'll be with the red warlord and not with the fascist warlord like <laughs> so i guess yeah, there's I, that I, like i joke around about eco-stalinism you know yeah we're gonna in order like the draconian measures taken to to save the world but then like i was i've been informed that eco-stalinism is actually like a, a thing now so huh. I'll, I'll switch it up to eco-Titoism then. <laughs> so wait, eco-Stalinism is like a thing? Yeah, actually, when on the episode that we did on symptomatic redness, you know, I joked around about uh, the need for eco-Stalinism, and Varn was like, watch out, man, I guess you haven't been reading Monthly Review lately, that's a thing. Oh, okay, he's talking about the eco-socialists in Monthly Review. Yeah, yeah. I think that Varn might be actually kind of unfair to um, some of the arguments that the Monthly Review people are making. Like, I think he's re he's referring to kind of, like, this uh, idea of degrowth. Oh, yeah. And I think it's it's a really controversial debate within environmental circles and Marxist circles. Like, there's this kind of idea that there needs to be, like, not a development of the productive forces, but, a, like, a development, like a, like, a, like, a basically a reversal of development in order to kind of bring... I don't know if I can fully even I do it justice because their arguments justice, but yeah, there is kind of like from the monthly review school, there kind of has come like a school of uh, eco Maoism or what you saw, like, you know. But I do think that some like that might be necessary to some degree. There might be like you know we might like I'm generally like we have overproduction in the core and underdevelopment mm -hmm. in the periphery in the global south, and so some kind of situation of you know, diverting excessive resources from, you know, the global north to underdeveloped places in the global south. Like, I think that's going to be a part of world communist construction. Uh, even like, so I, I went out to L.A. to to visit Jason recently. And one of the conversations that we had is like after dealing with just the disgusting sprawl and concentration and just the human misery that is L.A., we we had a conversation about it. it's like you know if after the after the revolution man we're just gonna have to make all these people move to the hinterlands because <laughs> this is unsustainable this is anti-human it totally is this is just 
Yeah, it's it's the most alienating, demoralizing way to construct a society. And, you know, we've got a whole bunch of land and a whole bunch of small towns. We're going to have to, like, go live in those, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be... There's going to have to be, you know, people moving, basically. Like, we're going to have to flee cities because of climate change and form new cities. And yeah, something interesting is Cuba is already kind of doing this. They're already moving people from coastal cities to, you know, safer areas that won't be, you know, flooded within the next 20 years or whatever. Like, they're already doing that. Whereas in the United States, we that, that's unthinkable that a project like that could exist. And so I think it kind of shows, though, why you need, like, central planning needs to be revived and a socialization of the economy needs to happen in order to properly deal with the uh, dangers of climate change. Whether yeah. you for degrowth or you want to take, you know, whatever your solution is, like, it's going to require conscious planning on, on humanity's part. So, having been familiar with, with you, Donald, through your... Um podcast that your former podcast anyway um uh swampside chats underlying a lot of what you guys talked about was references to mcnair and the weekly worker and um we actually know little to nothing about it and we're wondering if you could like sort of just give us like a little bit of a breakdown yeah uh i've actually met mike mcnair so i guess i'm very well suited to answer this question um <clears throat> Basically, The Weekly Worker is uh, the paper of the Communist Party Great Britain Provisional Coordinating, Provisional Central Committee. Like, they don't claim mm-hmm. to be the Communist Party Great Britain, but just like, like a Provisional Central Committee. And, and are they a, a breakaway from the old Communist yes, Party of Great Britain? the um, okay. old okay. Communist Party of Great Britain in the 80s, they had a, uh, there was a fact, there was a paper within the party called The Leninist. And... Mm-hmm. They were basically, it was led by this guy, Jack Conrad, who's still in the CPG, but writes a lot for Legally Worker. And um, The Leninist was this paper that uh, kind of developed a, they were, it was very critical of Trotskyism, but it kind of started developing a position critical of official communism and Stalinism mm-hmm. within the Communist Party. And they were against the, uh, when the Communist Party of Great Britain, like, collapsed and voted itself out of existence the they the, the leninist's paper they opposed the collapse of the communist party and wanted to keep it going and so they kept on going but at cpgb pcc provisional central committee hmm. and so that kind of um and then they started a new paper the weekly worker and then that's kind of the and so i guess that's the history of what it comes from like it yeah. comes out of the actual like official communist movement actually is a faction within there and a lot of people who are involved are ex-trotskyists a lot of people are um there's one woman in the uh cpgpcc who was actually a she fought in a maoist guerrilla group in iran against the ayatollah and is in exile from <laughs> iran and so there's all kinds they kind of you know developed a a view of politics where I guess you could, but people like to call it this Neo-Kautskyism, which I kind of think is kind of inaccurate, because basically the argument is that Kautsky and Lenin really weren't that different, and that this party-building strategy of Kautsky and the SPD, in the early SPD, before it became revisionist or whatever, was, was basically the a trick that inspired the Bolsheviks to be able to effectively organize a working class. And so, basically... It's kind of the Lars Lee thesis. Yeah, yeah. They're very... Lars Lee writes for the Weekly Worker all the time. Like, he's very much kind of affiliated. I don't know if he's... He's he's not a member or anything, but he definitely, like, writes a lot for the Weekly Worker. So, I would say that it's... Yeah, it's basically the Lars Lee school of Leninism, where... Basically, like, Lenin was a revolutionary social democrat. He believed in building a mass party. And so what we're trying to do is build, like, a mass party, kind of like what 
Lenin slash Kotsky in 1909 would have wanted, I guess, but obviously updated for modern conditions. The idea is that we want to not tail spontaneous movements that kind of pop up and hope that our small vanguard will kind of just jump into leadership of them and radicalize them, but rather we need to actually build up the movement and build a a mass communist party that's able to contest for power, a kind of state within the state, I guess would be a a term to use. And uh, this whole um, strategy, this is all kind of summarized by McNair really well in his book, Revolutionary Strategy, which I just, Mm -hmm. it's, it's available online in PDF. Revolutionary Strategy is what it's called. And I really, 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 really just, I can't recommend that book enough. Because it kind of, it goes over the whole theses, I guess, of what McNairism or whatever it would be called. You know, he argues against this kind of Trotskyist idea that we need to uh, have transitional demands that will kind of lead Mm -hmm. the workers by the nose into communism. And And he says, instead, what we need to have is a minimum program and a maximum program. And the minimum program is a set of measures that would institute a dictatorship of the proletariat. And the party only enters government once it can execute its minimum program. And so you would never, you wouldn't take power without smashing the capitalist state. And you wouldn't enter in the coalition with other capitalist parties. But you would still contest elections as a way of building your party, engaging your support. And the idea is that basically... In a period of crisis, you would have a mass party movement that would be able to actually provide an alternative center of authority to the bourgeois state and be the basis for building a worker state. And McNair is he's very into like democratic republicanism and like that kind of heritage of communism and the kind of like radical democratic aspect of Marx. That's another really as a big thing about McNair, but, you know, he's into reviving is looking at how Marx came out of this radical democratic tradition and how a lot of those ethos mm-hmm. and ideas of radical democracy, like always kind of stuck with Marx. And so McNair, you know, he's very into democracy and democratizing the unions and democratizing the sex. And he's, 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 in a way, uh, McNair's vision is kind of similar to what Marx's center is doing, because he, yeah, that's kind of what I gather. Yeah, because his whole idea is we need to build a mass party of the Marxist left and have that party be based around a political program, not a set ideology. Like we don't want to build a Trotskyist party. We don't want to build a Stalinist right. party. We don't want to build a Maoist party. We want to build a Marxist party. And that's that's yeah. basically the idea. I can get behind. Yeah, that. yeah right. that's. I guess cosmonaut. You know, you could kind of. I kind of wanted to become like an American version of the Weekly Worker, but more young, because a lot of the people. I don't. Yeah. And I don't mean this to diss you know my comrades in CPGB, but it's they don't have a lot of young blood. It's mostly people who, you know, were involved in the movement and are you know, honestly kind of burned out and are just kind of you know, writing theory almost. Like, I don't really think a a real communist party is going to come out of the weekly worker. But I think as communist intellectuals, they have developed a lot of really important ideas that the younger generation can use uh, to revitalize the communist movement if we, you know, use them in the right cool. ways. Yeah. Um, also, I think I've heard you uh, or seen you say this a number of times is that you're, you're really big into the idea that everybody should actually read Kautsky. Oh, yeah. I mean, at least if you want to claim to understand revolutionary politics and its evolution, like if you want to if you want to talk about Lenin and like, you know, actually know what Lenin is talking about, I feel like you kind of have to understand Kautsky because so much of Lenin's ideas come from Kautsky and a lot of what Lenin oh, yeah. leaves unsaid is said by Kautsky. And so I feel like you kind of... And also, you also need to read Luxembourg. But she yeah. kind of is, a, in my opinion, a kind of a left deviation from Kautsky and Lenin. Because she has this idea of the mass strike 
which kind of leads to this you know idea that the working class can kind of spontaneously fix its own problems yeah we uh that was that's probably a one of the foundational texts of the iso i yeah. think is the mass strike yeah we we read that reform or revolution and the mass strike yeah the, so the cliffites you know. like um they they definitely are Luxembourgists in that sense, so that they believe strongly in the mass strike as like the tool of the working class to kind of take power mm-hmm. and build consciousness. And McNair and the CPGB and the Weekly Worker, they they're very much they think that this kind of way of thinking has kind of caused the left to become overly sectarian and kind of tailist. And the form sex based out of theoretical unity rather than political unity. Hmm. And mm-hmm. we, the left kind of has to get away from this idea that there's going to be a spontaneous movement that we can just like ride the power. That we actually have to build a movement from the ground up. Right. And we have to actually organize working class neighborhoods, you know, build a, a working class culture build uh, trade unions, fight for political leadership of the labor movement, you know, fight in electoral politics even, you know, but as communist and not as just, um, you know, liberals or whatever, like. I mean, you know, the critical difference between our time and that of like Luxembourg's time is, or Pentecost's time or whatever, Bordiga's time even, is that uh, there is no broad socialist consensus of even a reformist Mm -hmm. bent in the workers movement there is no broadly there's no deep union culture let alone you know culture of you know working class power as such for whatever end so like that's you know the the base building uh uh tendency uh, on the marxist left today is you know it's a it's an adaptation to the reality that the base is no longer built. You know, maybe there was a time in mm-hmm. which there was a hell of a base, you know, and you could, uh, you could rely on, and you even maybe, maybe there was a, a reason, you know, for somebody like Luxembourg to be saying, you know, the bureaucratic layer of, you know, reformist leaders in the workers' movement have a, an effect of tamping down the enthusiasm of the masses, but then the mass strike flips, flips everything on its head, right? The yeah, assumption, the of is, course, yeah, is that the workers had a party. That argument doesn't get anywhere because you don't have an official labor movement that's yeah. keeping the that's tamping down the revolutionary spirit of the masses because there just isn't. And I think um, the, with mass strikes, like a lot of people see mass strikes as kind of coming spontaneously. It's something that's just kind that just kind of happens spontaneously, but. When you have mass strikes historically, where workers in different industries join uh, workers in other industries in strikes, you usually have some kind of a. Uh, there's already some kind of sense of working class solidarity that exists, right. that um, that allows a mass strike to exist. Like there's usually socialists have already kind of organized this town or industry or. And, you know, there's, there is a, the socialist ideology has made contact with the workers, and there is this kind of sense that we are a class, we're in this together. And in, in Germany, when Rosa Luxemburg was writing, you already had, had you know, the, a mass party movement and a, a union movement that right. was built by socialists. So, you know, the mass strike can happen as a tactic whereas today where you don't have that same sense of solidarity in the working class i mean i guess you still you still do get mass strikes like you had but it's not they're not cross industry that's the thing that really makes a mass strike in my opinion mass strike is that it's cross industry and you you had the teacher strikes which were you know you know that was that brought together a lot of people from different workplaces but they weren't uh you know they weren't you know, cross industry, if that makes sense. But, and, right. and they did involve the entire community as well. That's another thing is that often like really successful mass strike actions, they involve parts of the working class that aren't even employed. Right. We like saw this there's in the minor strike and, and stuff like that. The difference um, between the, you know, between like the teacher strikes in the States, which are inspiring as they are. Right. And like the, general strike in india not not long ago which which you know millions of people participated in is is pretty significant and one of those 
differences is there's a communist tradition there, right? So what, yeah, exactly. what we're talking about is like rebuilding it. that tradition or, you know, we're, forget the word tradition, we're trying to build a new communism, you know, around which yeah. the yeah. people can fuse together and disparate little workplace actions or even, you know, broad ones can be situated in, you know, with that, within that vision for a different world altogether, like you were talking about before. Yeah. We we did a, a, a little bit of a one of our first episodes was on the concept of base building. And, um, you know, I, I think I we, we probably need to go back and revisit that discussion and get a little bit deeper into it. This this discussion has kind of made me really want to do that now. I think we could uh, we could dive a lot deeper than we did before. It's interesting how it's kind of been turned into a whole strategy of itself lately Mm -hmm. or i see like base building is just the bread and butter of what socialist organizing is and that's what i always understood if you're doing socialist organizing right you're base building yeah like you're building a constituency of proletarians who are able to fight you know you're building some kind of class power to fight against you know a boss or a landlord or you're just building a general working class solidarity through organization because that's the thing is that the, the working class it's it's power comes through organization it's not even necessarily its ability to withdraw labor power so much as the ability to combine as an organizational force that gives the working class power if that makes sense like in order yeah. in order to win demands the working class has to organize and has to unite and that itself creates a democratic collectivist culture that can become mm-hmm. a basis for socialism. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, uh, like, some people kind of over-theorize base building and, like, overthink it too much. But I think that really, like I said, it's just... Marxists would never do such a thing. <laughs> yeah, like, I think there's just, like, a lot of people who kind of try to be like, oh, base building's this totally new idea that's, you know, you know, shaking everything up. But I think it's just the, the ABCs, basically, like, agitate educate organize and base building would be the uh, organized part of that well i mean like if you're like us and you came out of the uh <laughs> the sort of uh, reactive hyperactivism that um pretty much just tailed movements you know tailism uh, around whatever movement was gaining any sort of traction at the time then base building is kind of a new strategy you know yeah that's 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 the thing is that's a really good point because so much of the left is just in that, like you said, this tail list, just, you know, whatever the popular activist thing is at the time, we go to those rallies and we sell newspapers and we try to recruit people. And it's just like, after so many years of this, it just becomes like so obvious to some people that it's a dead end, but it's such a consensus in the left that like something like base building, it seems like, yeah, it comes off as something kind of radical and like, whoa, I never thought about yeah. it that way. But it's like, well, but this is how socialist and, like, you know, all the successful parties that existed thought. Like, they didn't think, like, oh, we're just going to go to liberal protest and, like, hand out flyers and, you know, that's going to build a party. No, they organized working class communities, they built unions, they ran candidates, they formed cultural organizations, they built a culture of working class solidarity actively. Like, they didn't just wait for the workers to kind of do it on their own. They... You know, they fought for these things. Well, I just, I guess I kind of wanted to make like a pitch for just, you know, optimism almost. Because, I mean, I kind of come from a similar, like, kind of like ultra pessimistic, like left calm background. And I understand, like, you know, like, you don't want to get, like, too excited about the latest leftist fad and kind of lose your mind and, and, and... I mean, that's what our whole, our history was completely based on, yeah. was just getting excited about the, last, <laughs> <laughs> the next fad and then having the rug yanked out from under us yeah. every single fucking time. But I think that, like, there is a basis for optimism if, if one, like, you know, kind of takes the approach of listen like the left has failed we've we fucked up and you know in a lot of ways but we can take these lessons and and systematically learn from them and then you know put them into practice if that makes sense like it's it's not all doom and gloom like yes the soviet union was very flawed and 
it wasn't this, and it has created in a lot of people's minds this vision of socialism as you know, like a, a really negative thing. But I think that it's possible that you know, when people combine their efforts and and when there is a kind of a, an urge towards unity rather than separation, I think that they can kind of change the rules of the game and, and put the left in a better position altogether, if that makes sense. Do yeah, we? I feel like um, it's it's not just entirely like an objective thing that's outside of the control of human actors. Like I think if the left does get its shit right and, and learns the right lessons and does the right things, it is possible that we can, you know, we can change the, we can change our luck basically. Like we don't have to be as necessarily as pessimistic as we would be, you know. I feel called out. <laughs> Do we? Uh... Well, no. No, no, it's all right. Um, that's a good note to end on. I mean, do we do we allow a guest the the respect of ending on a positive note like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, why not? I mean, I, to 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 an extent, I agree. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's like uh, my extent, point is you know. just that not everything is doom and gloom. Like there is. Oh there no! Is hope that I the mean, world like, can change. I'm just not allowing myself to get too optimistic about the way things are. You know, I I've done that way too many times before. Um, but I got to say that things are are looking better now than they have in the entire time that I have been involved in politics. You know, I'm I'm 37 now. I joined the Communist Party when I was 18. Um, actually, when I was 17, I joined the Young Communist League, um, and I've never seen more of a reason to be optimistic yeah no i've never seen a better reason to be optimistic than we have now but at the same time you know i'm like i'm guarded well the reason the reason to be guarded is because you could easily just let yourself fall into the next activist fad that doesn't go anywhere and right like i got really disillusioned with that really quick and became like an ultra cynical left calm for a period of time and it was kind of McNair and the Weekly Worker that kind of actually convinced me that, oh, wait, it is actually possible that good things can happen and we're not doomed completely by how much we fucked up in history. Like, it was actually, you know, reading McNair that kind of, like, restored my revolutionary optimism or whatever you want to call it, you know. Yeah. I would say that, if nothing else, at least we could take a lot of them out with us right <laughs> well you know we, like i said we might end up living in warlord communism and so yeah you know if that's what counts for optimism you know all <laughs> maybe warlord you know eco war communism is as optimistic as we can be but hey I'll, I'll take it if that's what's on offer yeah so all right guys that was a really good discussion thank you so much donald for coming on would you like to, you know, do you, where can people find you and where can people find, you know, can people find <laughs> uh, Cosmonaut? Um, all right. So if you want to just talk to me, I'm on Twitter as Donald P1917 and I'm on Facebook as Donald Parkinson. But I'd rather have you uh, look at Cosmonaut, dot, uh, Cosmonaut, which is just Cosmonaut.blog. And we're looking for writers. You know, if you if you want to write something for us, you know, don't be afraid. 